Tonight, if you have a Bible, you can open up to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And as we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we pick up where David had brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, to the city of David. He's super excited. It's, it's a really great time for Israel. He's now the king of all 12 tribes of Israel. The kingdom's consolidated. No more divided kingdom with Abner and uh, Ishabeth and all that. One kingdom, one king. The tribes united. It's, it's a, you know, you could say it's an apex for the nation of Israel because they went through hundreds of years of the judges where they're always getting beat down by their enemies. And then they had the time of Saul, which was choppy, pursuing David and all that confusion. And suddenly there's order, there's peace. God is prospering. It's a really good time for the nation of Israel. It really is the apex and zenith of the best they've ever been in the promised land. And God is really with them. He's got his man leading the country, David, and it's all there. So with that background, David is rejoicing. He brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. The tabernacle and the Ark is no longer over here, but it's centralized. It's, it's, everything's just like really it's exciting. They had the big party, and everyone's rejoicing. They went home with full bellies. It's the ultimate gathering in Jesus' name as a shadow of things that come in the Old Testament with Jehovah. Now, when you come to chapter 7, what happens is David is just, he's fired up. Like, he's fired up in the Lord. He's fired up on all the good things of God. So he has this idea, like, oh, I want to build a temple. Like, I want to build God a house. Because he has his, he's got his house going, and he's like, he's like, a lot of people are like, oh, I want to do something great for the Lord. I want, to, I want to build God a house. And Nathan, the prophet's like, well, that, that sounds like a good idea. I can see why you'd want to do that. Because on paper, it looks like a good idea. So Nathan's like, do whatever's in your heart. Because you're the man after God's own heart. And then at night, the Lord comes to Nathan and goes like, no, no, that's not the right answer. It, it, is, it is a good idea. But it's not for, I didn't give you this idea. And it's not for this timeline. Which is interesting because, of course... David did want to build the temple his whole life. He accumulated wealth that he left for his son Solomon to use in building the temple. Solomon did, in fact, build the temple. The presence of the Lord came upon the dedication. The Shekinah glory came upon the dedication of the temple. It was amazing. Centuries later, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed that temple. And then about a century later, Zerubbabel and Ezra and those guys, they rebuilt the temple, and that was a glorious thing. And that's the fortified temple that Jesus came to when he entered the temple. Then Jesus was crucified with the false claim that he would tear down the temple. Remember that false accusation? But he's speaking of his body. Three days, I'll destroy this. So the temple was involved in that. Then Jesus said that when the apostles came to him talking about, look at this temple, it's amazing. He's like, that's nothing. It'll be gone in no time. And that one stone will be left upon another. So that second temple was completely destroyed. Then in the book of Acts, when Stephen's preaching before he was stoned by the religious leaders, he talked about the temple and how God doesn't dwell in a temple and how could the, a temple contain the God of the universe with a trillion galaxies. Essentially, that's what he said. Then we're told in the book of Revelation there's going to be another temple. And so there's a lot of people waiting for a new temple to be built in Israel because we're told that the Antichrist will go in that temple and that's a prelude for the king, return of the king and the kingdom of God being established on earth. So the whole idea of building a house for God, that you know, David's like, I want to build a house for God. And it's like, it's a good idea. And God tells Nathan, well, that's not it. So that's not what's going to happen. But when you really think about the history of the temple and all what's happened with the temple and its connection to scripture, Solomon, all these things, it's like, David, that's just not for you. That's just, 
I didn't ask you to do it. It's not for you. But God, in fact, says to Nathan, tell David something better than that. Instead of him building me a house, I'm going to build him a house. And I'm going to make his, dece- I'm going to make his kingdom an everlasting kingdom. And his descendants will reign after him. and There will be no end to his kingdom. Now, this part of the chapter 9 is prophetically speaking of Jesus coming because Jesus comes from the seed of David. He takes the title of son of David through Mary, the virgin birth. So David, David had this promise made to him that his kingdom would be everlasting and established. And we know for a thousand years in time, space, and matter with men and women. I mean, a thousand years later, Mary is the hero of perhaps all women in the Bible carrying the child, Jesus, from a virgin birth. She's the descendant of the promise of chapter 7 here, a thousand years later. So what God spoke to David was true because Mary is his descendant that carries the Son of God, Jesus himself. Let alone all those kings like Jerubbabel and Hezekiah and Josiah that were good. They're all descendants of David. But the real focal point of the promise of an everlasting kingdom is not so much David's kingdom because ultimately the two run parallel. David's is an earthly kingdom. But the eternal kingdom runs through David. And that's really the greater picture. So ultimately when God tells through Nathan, David, look, your throne will be established forever. He said that in verse 16 of chapter 7. Your throne will be established forever. It's really pointing to Jesus and the kingdom of God. And in this prophecy, God says, I've established you, David. I've established my people Israel. And I'm going to establish my kingdom, your kingdom forever, which ultimately is God's kingdom. Well, then David's like, wow, I don't even know what to say. Because it's like how we are. So often we want to do things to please God or earn God's favor. But grace is believing God, receiving his promises, and gaining his favor through faith and believing, not through works of doing, right? And we can all relate to that because it's in us to want to do something, to earn something. But right here, God's just really presenting the gospel of grace to David. David's like, I want to do this for you. I want to do this good work. I was like, sit down. I'm going to do a good work for you. By grace you've been saved, that through faith, not of works. And then ultimately, David is God's workmanship, and God had a work through David, even as we're told in the New Testament with believers that we're his workmanship, and God has a work through us. This is important to the context of this chapter before we get into our application, because we want to frame it in its historical context in the understanding of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. The promise that God made to David through Nathan is really the promise of the gospel of grace, that we're saved through faith in what God promises us, not what we do for him or to earn favor or even a result of what he's doing in and through us. And in this background, the latter part of chapter 7, David's like, Lord, your word's amazing. You're just amazing. And you're amazing to your people Israel. You're amazing to me. I don't even know what to say. And then at the very end of the chapter, he says in verse 28, and we look at these two verses. So as David pours out his heart, he's going like, God, you are so good. I don't even know what to say. He's blessed. He's just blessed beyond measure. And he says, and now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it, and with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. What an amazing end to David's prayer, because we have all these psalms with David where we see his prayers before the Lord in his psalms, and here we have 
We have already had a couple songs of David already in going through the historical books, but here we have this prayer that gives us great insight of the man who had a heart for God and how he ends his prayer upon being told by God, you're not going to build me a temple. I'm going to build you an everlasting kingdom. Now, since the things of Christ are shadows of things to come, but the fullness is Christ in the Old Testament, in David's understanding with this prayer, he would understand this and receive it in its context that God's saying, from your descendants, the kingdom's established forever. He, he wouldn't really have the full understanding that it's not just his house, but through his house, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, would come. That's not an understanding that David would fully have in the context, but of course we now, with the New Testament, the church looking back, we understand that more fully. And that is the high point over the passage. But in the context, David's just like, he's like all of us in the church age, going like, when God just pours out his blessings on us, we're like, <laughs> like, who am I? Like, Lord, you're so good, like, what can I even say? Like, you've blessed us with, you, you brought this to pass, you brought that to pass, and you've blessed our children and our grandchildren and our, our children's children, and you've, you've prospered our business, and you've done this, and you've done that, and you've, you've chastened us and molded us and shaped us and corrected us and made us more like you, where you just, you just go like, Lord, you're just such a blessing, God, and you're so good. Even when, like, you spank me, you're good. Because whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And as we mentioned on Tuesday night, his end is always good. And by faith, we know that he's going to always do good and work things together for good for his followers, the church. Now, God is good to all humanity. He's great to his universe. Everything in the universe, he's good too. Even in his fallen effect of sin over the entire universe, he's good to, he's good to people who hate him. And he's especially good to those who love him. He's, he's for humanity because God so loved the world he gave his son, Right? that whoever believes in him would not perish. So we know God's heart is for humanity, and we know that while we're yet enemies, Christ was reconciling us to himself through the cross. We've got to keep that in mind when we think about the loss. Yes, they're under the wrath of God, which is revealed against all ungodliness and men who suppress the truth and ungodliness. But we also know that God's not willing that he should perish and that he's long-suffering, bringing people to repentance. This is really important to understand in every generation of the church because it's understanding the heart of God for our generation, whether we live in 300 AD, 750 AD with Charmelain, Char Charlemagne or whoever, like in all the history of the church, state churches, Catholic church, how the church looked for 2,000 years, Protestant reformations, Quakers in Pennsylvania in the 1700s, whatever it is, God is sent his son for humanity, not because we're good, but because we're lost and we need to be saved. But his ultimate goodness is directed toward those who as many as believe in him and receive him, who become the children of God and become adopted into his family, which is the church. So in this chapter, when David's talking about, when God talks about his blessings upon Israel, and then David talks about his blessing upon Israel, the people themselves, people of covenant, because this is God making a covenant with David, we realize we are the people of covenant. God has a blessing for humanity. He has a blessing for the nation of Israel, not yet complete. But his ultimate blessing is for the church. Because what he's doing for Israel ultimately is for the church. And what he's doing for the nations is ultimately for the church. So tonight as we gather in Jesus' name in this facility, we are the children of blessing through faith in Jesus Christ. We are daughters of the king. We are sons of the king. And those blessings and promises that are yes and amen, they are ours. And I've been saying time and time again lately as we've gone through this book, 
They're no greater or lesser for you than they are for me. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we receive all the blessings, and they're applied to us. Now, with that in mind, as we look at these couple of verses, in this tail end of of David's prayer, he's not a man who's frazzled or unsettled. You know, the next chapter, it's like war, 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 war. The next chapter, we study Tuesday night, he's got to take on the Amalekites and the Moabites and the Syrians and their buddies and their alliance. And, and he's, you know what he's got to do? He's got to go give the entire surrounding region a beatdown. That's what he does. You know, a lot of chapters in the Bible where Israel fights people, they lose because they're being chastened by God. David's, David's like blessed by God. He gives everybody in chapter 8 a beatdown. He takes tribute. He pays and pay taxes. He's like puts a garrison in their city. He's like, don't mess with Israel in the time of David. And then Solomon just kind of expanded even farther. Like, yeah, don't mess with my dad either or me, right? So there's this two generation zenith of Israel that was never equaled again in 1,500 years of their existence as a nation. And this is important too because all those battles in the next chapter follow this prayer in this chapter. So he's got the perspective that God is in control. He's going to go fight these people. And here's the thing about, in the context of the Bible, the Syrians, the Amalekites, Edomites, the Moabites, you know, they're there in every generation. Just because you beat them down in your generation in 1000 B.C. doesn't mean your, your grandson, Rehoboam, doesn't have to take them on in 900 B.C. In other words, the enemies of God are there until Christ comes and splits the Mount of Olives with his return. In fact, the Bible makes it very clear the whole world comes together at Armageddon to fight God, led by Russia and the kings of the east, which sounds like the BRICS, if you know what the BRICS are. Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. In case you don't know those terms, that's the acronym for the global money powers trying to compete with the West and the Western bankers. Yeah, just know this. The BRICS are the ones running the planet on the day Christ comes back. They're leading the charge, and they're going to lead the charge. That's what's going to happen. The Bible makes that very clear. But until that happens, there's going to be humanity at war with God. And the church is going to be on planet Earth representing Christ and the heart of God to humanity that's at war with God. Did you follow that? It's like a chalkboard equation. It's not Einstein. It's just Joey's simple biblical explanation. There is a world of humanity at war with God. And the church exists to be ambassadors for God and the cross of Jesus Christ to show them the heart of God and win them to Christ. And we know that the wrath of man produces not the righteousness of God, but that a soft answer turns away wrath. So the way to win the world is not through pride, anger, and raging, but the way to win the world is through humility, brokenness, love, and service. This is the way of the cross. That's why Jesus himself said the greatest in the kingdom of God is what? He's the servant. She's the servant of all. We don't rule the world by conquering it. We win the world by dying for it. This is very important to understand on second half of 2022. David is not moved by the the trials and tribulations he's had to this point in his life, 40-ish, have shaped him to be an incredible man of God, ready for greatness. And the uncertain future, which is endless wars against the enemies of God, is going to be there till the end of his timeline. But really, what became David's biggest problem in his life? Was it Edomites, Moabites, 
Amalekites. The biggest problem in David's life was the person in the mirror. The Edomites didn't bring David down. His lust for his buddy's wife brought him down. It wasn't the Amalekites that caused his sons to give him all that grief and problems. It was his decision to multiply wives that caused him griefs and problems. Which is what I've been saying for about the last 10 years. My problem on planet Earth, for me personally, is not people in power. It's the person in the mirror. And I receive that for me, and I think those of a mature mind receive it for you. Yeah, it was epiphany about 10 years ago. I realized, you know, like, I've been on planet Earth for 50 years. I've been 60 now, but about 10 years ago, I've been on planet Earth for 50 years. And I suddenly had this epiphany, like, you know, like, all these things that upset me, and all these people in power, it's like, and I'm like, and I'm like, they've never really affected me negatively in my life. But my sin has affected me very negatively in my life. This guy, this woman, he, he never... They never came and took anything from me. I just let them upset me and, ah, and like, but really my problems are me, the person in the mirror. And this again is contextually very important because in this prayer of David, we have to understand it's not about Edomites, Amalekites, Moabites, and anyone else out there that is raging against God. It is about God is on the throne. He wants us to have a heart for him, and he wants us to live a proper life for him. And that's really what it's about. And the woman who does that and the man who does that has peace. And that's what it's all about. So as we look at this text, he's really, you know, David, is, this is what he's saying to the church tonight. Be blessed. God is in control. That's what David's saying right here. Hey, your daughters of the king. Your sons, be blessed. God is in control. If it's health, be blessed. God is in control. If it's finances, be blessed. God is in control. If it's political people that want to destroy the church, God is in control. Anything that could upset us when we walk out these doors... We have to decide through self-determination if we're going to choose to be blessed and trust that God is in control or we're going to get moved from the place of faith and confidence in the Lord and forget that God is in control and allow ourselves not to be blessed by the things of the Lord. God wants to do a work in his church in 2022, part two. He wants to do a work in each of our lives in every season we're in. And if we make that the focal point of our life, we'll let him run the universe. There's a trillion galaxies out there, and he knows the name of every single planet and asteroid and comet in these galaxies. He knows the name of every single one of them. He knows the hairs on our head. He knows the DNA of the one cell that you were in your mother's womb that made you who you are. So it's a good word to be reminded tonight to be blessed, like David, because David had the heart for God. So what do you learn from the heart for God when he's praying to God? Be blessed. God is in control. Not your boss not your neighbors, not political powers, global conspiracy powers or whatever. God is in control. So you look at his prayer. And now, O Lord, drum roll, and now, O Lord, like a drum roll. And now, O Lord, you are God. You are God. Now, doesn't that just solve, like, everything that's wrong in your life right now? Oh, I thought I was God. 
I thought I had to resolve this. I thought I have to carry this. I thought I need to figure this out. I thought the doctors were God. I thought the government was God. I thought my boss was God. No, you, Jehovah, are God. And the earth is your footstool. You are God. It's kind of like the Lord's Prayer. When you pray, pray in this manner. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's just another way of saying you are God. We talk about framing and branding things in 2022. Hey, frame and brand everything over our lives and this church and your home. You are God. That's a mic drop for you younger people. You are God. Boom. Because what can any demonic force or entity, Satan himself, or any created being say that can trump that or usurp that statement for final authority in this universe and in your heart? You are God. Boom. That's a perspective we need over everything in our lives in all things. So it's good to remind ourselves tonight, God is in control. He's in control of the physical laws of the universe. You know, gravity is working the same way today as working yesterday. The way it worked for Michelangelo, the way it worked for all the great kings and queens of the past. Gravity worked for Queen Victoria, Peter the Great, Catherine the Great. Yeah, gravity works for everybody. It worked this way in, you know, Continental Congress, 1775, 1776. You know, gravity during the Revolutionary War, gravity worked the same for the French, the British, and the Americans, and the Germans, right? Gravity is still working the way it works. The physical laws that guide our universe, where all these asteroids and comets, like billions of them, are just swirling around, not hitting our planet. It's all... I mean, occasionally a comet hits us, like, you know, the big meteor park in Arizona off the 40. But, you know, like, and we're still here. Like, it's all working the way it's supposed to work, the physical laws of the universe. And we need to be reminded of that. This universe doesn't go boom, boom until the Lord says it's boom time. And we'll know when it's boom time because we'll be in glory. This clockwork of the universe and the physical laws in spite of sin, where entropy works against us, that we are getting older, physically, moving toward death. They're working the way he set them up to work. And they're going to keep working until he makes a new heaven and a new earth. And the spiritual laws, they're working exactly the way they set them up. The spiritual laws are working. Sowing and reaping, it worked in the Old Testament the way it works in the New Testament. You sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. If you're a giver in the year of uh, 1000 BC, you're a giver, guess what? You get the blessings. If you're a taker, guess what? You get nothing. You're as much a loser then as you are 3,000 years later. Givers give because they're always willing to keep on giving because they're always willing to keep on forgiving. Takers take. It's never enough. You've only taken almost all your stuff. The world can be divided by saved and unsaved and then givers and takers. That's pretty much the way it is. Some people just live to give, and those same people who give, they forgive. But the takers take, and it's never enough. When you want to take almost all your stuff. And they work with you, they live in your neighborhood, and they come to church. Hopefully not here. But, you know, you wouldn't want to stick around because we want to give. We sow. 
you could change your DNA and your culture and you do just fine at WG. But if you're a taker, you're not just, you're just not going to do really well at WG. It just doesn't work. It's a very generous church. All of you, I look around, you people are very, very generous. We're all in it together. We sow bountifully. We're, we're just sowing and sowing. See, you are God. His universal physical laws are at work. His spiritual laws are at work. And we, we don't jump off buildings because we're not going to test those physical laws against our common sense. And we sow bountifully because we trust those spiritual laws to be fulfilled to our benefit and the benefit of others. Because one who loses their life will find it. And Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. This is the heart of the gospel. So we're just reminded tonight, it's not about who's in control, who can do this, who can force that, who can scream the louder than the other person. It's like, you are God. And we just have to stay on point and realize he's got the universe under control physically and spiritually, and he's got this. And he's working in us. So let's keep our hearts aligned with the physical law so we get the blessings and the spiritual law so we get the blessing. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And no matter how many Amalekites, Edomites, Moabites, Syrians collaborate together and conspire together and rage against the kingdom, he's on the throne and he's coming in glory. And there's not one thing planet Earth and the powers of hell can do to stop it. And until then, we're his people and we represent him. We're citizens of heaven, and we're ambassadors of the kingdom. So let's just do what the, what the king's told us to do. Because he says, who is that faithful servant who his master finds when he so returns? And may we be that servant. So just keep he is God over everything and, and block out the noise. Jennifer even commented recently, like, you're just not upset about anything right now. And then we used to say, well, I don't watch the news. But you know what? I can watch the news. It doesn't even upset me. I'm like, wow, what happened in the 61st year of my life? This stuff just does not, it doesn't push my buttons. It's, I, I, don't, I don't want to say, like, I got a double portion going or something. But, like, I'm like, I still believe all the same things. I still, that grieves me and that quenches me. This blesses me, that gives me joy. I just, it just, I don't let it, I don't let it come here. I don't let it come in here. It just doesn't bother me. We're still fighting the good fight. We're still keeping the faith. We're having done all the standby. It's just like, I, when you get older, you just don't have time. I don't have time that things I have no control over come into my headspace and rob me of the joy of the Lord and what he's called me to do today. I just don't have time for it. And if I've got a good battle, I'll know when it lands in my face because I'm going forward with the Lord, and so are you. So if there's going to be a big battle, if the Moabites show up, hey, Lord, the Moabites are at the door. Help Jesus. It was Greg Laurie used to say, you know, when the devil shows up the door, just call Jesus, tell him someone's come to see him. Jesus is for you. <laughs> it's true. So that right perspective. We need to purpose in our heart right now know that, that God is in control of all things. His church, your life. You are God. Second thing, your words are true. Ah, oh, of course they are. God is light in him is no darkness at all. In you is truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The word of God is the embodiment of truth. It's absolute truth. A popular term in business these days is the term pivot. You know, it's that idea like you're trying to do this and you realize it's not working, so you gotta, you got to pivot like in dance and you get like a dance pivot. You know, like you're like this and you got to pivot this way. So you pivot. The whole world's pivoting. <laughs> God's not pivoting. He's, he's, he's rock solid where he's at with his truth. 
The truth has not changed and will never change. God is light and there is no darkness at all. So let God be true and every man a liar. The truth from Genesis to Revelation does not change. It is established and it won't be moved by men and women who rage and war against God. So people can move the ancient boundaries. People can do this. People can go, la, la, la. They can scream the whatever they want. But the truth is the truth. And I've shared this before with my son, Luke, who's an excellent debater. Because he doesn't get, all, he doesn't get emotional. And there's something about it. Like I've said before, he just does not get emotional. But he said something to me a couple of years ago where he said, Dad, the truth is the truth. It doesn't change. And you don't need to get worked up defending it. Because I'm like, Luke, how do you not get worked up when you're going at it with people? And he goes, why would I? It's the truth. The truth is the truth. It's going to do what it does. It doesn't become any more truthful because I get worked up or any less truthful because I get flustered. The truth is the truth. It guides, God's truth is over his universe. His truth on origin, gender, marriage, purpose, the kingdom, it doesn't change. The truth doesn't change. There's no pivoting with the king. He's coming, and his truth is absolute. And the church has been built on 2,000 years of absolute truth. And where the church believes the truth, looks to the truth, and is governed by the truth, the truth is very fruitful and prosperous for individuals, for local churches, and movements. The truth will set you free. And so we present the truth. And if people are against the truth in the person of Christ and the truth of the word of God as it pertains to morality and absolute truth and right and wrong, what are you going to do? You'd think, that, you'd think that we think we're the first generation that people rage against the truth. You would think sometimes the way the church acts in 2022 that we've never seen people not receive the truth or be against the truth or try and twist the truth. Satan twisted the truth to Jesus in his temptation in the wilderness. Oh, it's written of you. Listen, Satan's so bold, he twists scriptures out of context when tempting Jesus. Of course he twists the truth. That's why we need to know the truth and stand on the truth. The word is truth, and it's a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. If we purpose to believe God's word in its entirety, we're never going to get lost in the woods. We're going to always have our compass. The world's lost because they don't have a compass. And a lot of churches are lost because they've decided that God's compass isn't their compass. Just make sure it's yours. For your personal character and your moral decisions, for your marriage, for governance of your house and your heart and your home. Just put that truth over everything in your lives, in our lives, over this church. The word is, all scripture is given by God and profitable for instruction, doctrine, training. It's the truth. And God would even say time and time again in the Old Testament, thus says the Lord at least 3,000 times, but he, he says, put me to the test. I tell you things that are going to happen before they happen. And that's how you know I tell the truth. And that's what he does. And you hear so many people talking about from a church perspective that we see going on in our world. It's like, oh, this is what the Bible said would happen. Right. So why are we surprised? Our faith should be even stronger. Our faith should be even stronger that we see things happening that would reflect prophetic truths about the world before Christ returns. And we see things happening. It would say Christ could come tonight, but he could always come tonight. That's what he said. Watch and be ready. But as we have a further understanding of events now versus like 40 years ago when Pastor Chuck after Yom Kippur said the Lord's probably coming back soon, 73, 
How much more do we have now? What is going on around us is just evidence of God's truth already spoken in his word of what things will be like in the last days. It shouldn't get us unsettled and upset. It should put even more peace in our hearts to keep doing the right thing and stay on track and and not be moved and to pray with greater fervency and to not get pulled out of our lane, to to not Get out of our space. There's a great clip from Kobe Bryant's career years ago. There's a, a top defender, I think it's for the San Antonio Spurs, and his whole job for in the NBA playoffs for as many games as the Spurs played the Lakers was to get under Kobe's skin, to get in his face and get him off his game because Kobe Bryant, of course, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And there was, there was a time when he was like in Kobe's face and doing all this stuff, and Kobe just like, he was unflinching. He was unflinching. And it, it, I just always remember that when Kobe and his parents, it's like he didn't, he didn't take the bait. And so often in sports, like the red card in soccer goes to the person who retaliates for what happened in the foul before. Or in football, you know, the personal foul and the ejection comes after what happened before that. And the world, the flesh, and the devil are always like late hitting us, cheap shotting us, throwing an elbow in the scrum, whatever. And it's like we just, have to, we just have to keep our composure. We need to keep our composure and know that the truth is the truth. We're going to stand on the truth and, and, not, and not be moved. Our, our confidence is that the Lord's in control. It's his universe, and his truth isn't going to change. We don't need, we don't need to be standing and living and believing the truth and think like, well, I wonder if it's going to change tomorrow. See, people that follow the latest trends or every wind of doctrine that men come up with, they have to ask themselves, well, where is it going? It's fluid, right? We're just like, boom. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All the ground, the sinking sand. There's a firm foundation. You think the God of Mount Sinai with the burning mountain <laughs> is playing games with his word? He's, he's, he's going to have the final say. Truth is truth. So we don't need to get worked up because people reject it or we feel like we need to defend it. We just need to live it and be it. We need to stand on it and let it transform us and live it, and be it, and demonstrate it. Which brings us to this third point. He says, hey, you have promised this goodness to your servant. Okay, so you are God. God's in control. His word is truth. That's our standard. And then this goodness, everything God wants to do, this is true. Everything God wants to do for humanity is good. We need to think about that when humanity is at war with God. Everything God wants to do for humanity is good. In Ezekiel, he said, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but I take pleasure that they repent. They're, they're, I'm repulsed by death. I've said this before. Sometimes, I, you know, I, I hate it, but on Instagram, somehow I get these feeds where I see like an animal killing another animal. I just hate that. I just hate to see anything that's death. I don't like to see a lizard eating a cricket. I just, I just don't like death. I don't like it at all. At all. God's not into death. So I'm quite certain God doesn't like to see an alligator eating a gazelle either. I, I just, I, that's not the heart of God. God is life. When he creates a new heaven and earth, there's no more tears and sorrows. It's all life. The cobra's bite doesn't kill. The lion doesn't attack. If there's T-Rexes, you can pet them. God is good. 
and in him there's no darkness at all. And we need to be reminded tonight that everything he wants to do for the human race and planet Earth, prophetically spoken before Christ came and demonstrated on the cross and the empty tomb, is good. So we, need to, we don't need to wake up with some fear that God's out to get us and he wants to ruin us. And even though I've done something foolish, like he causes things to work together for good. So learn from mistakes, keep loving God, and know that he wants to do good. We can trust the Lord. People have a hard time trusting the goodness of the Lord. People in the world think that God's so often that God's against them. And there's people that represent Christ that would make those people really think God's against them. But God is good. And what he wants to do in the world's life is good. Whatever sins and failures would mar someone's life, what he wants to do is good. I saw someone we've been praying for in this church, you, you, you would know from the prayer request, but I saw them randomly yesterday at the beach. It was a divine appointment. <clears throat> They're homeless. And they, 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 they gave me a fist pump randomly, like, oh, you're Joey Brand. And so we started talking. And they started saying all this negative stuff, and I go, I don't want to hear it. And he goes, you want to talk about the OP Pro? Sure, let's talk about the OP Pro. The year of the ride, oh, yeah, the ride out of Bob, bonk these guys. You know, like, but I'm not going to let you badmouth someone in our church. I just have no time for it. But as I looked at this man, having prayed for this man, and knowing we've prayed for this man, I just saw his humanity. And I saw all the potential of what God still wanted to do. And of course, I thought of my sister, who was once homeless and is thriving with the Lord. And my wife said, well, was he like, how was he? Was he like there or not? I'm like, no, he was there. He had that little homeless edge you get when you're homeless, but he was all there. And he was dropping scripture, talking about Brian Broderson. Like, yeah. Like he, I was like, but I looked at this man, I thought, like, God is good. Everything God wants to do in this guy's life is good. So why are you doing this? Why are you blaming people that love you? Why are you blaming God and living in the 86 OP Pro, beating people up? I was running for my life. You're pounding people <laughs> in the riot of 86. All I was like, I think when I looked at this man, is God is good. And God wants to do good in his life. And so I was smiling and encouraging and spoke words of life and, and spoke blessings over his life, actually. Because God is good. He's for that man. And he's alive, and that man can turn it around like my sister turned it around. God is good. And the people that frustrate you, you need to know God is good toward them. And when you think that maybe God's against you because you're going through trials and tribulations, testings, and even tragedies, we just need to know that God is good. And like the book of James says concerning Job, we know that the end that the Lord intended for him was good. And there are things that frustrate us. Where we feel like, Lord, really? But we just need to know that God is good. And if something that can so profoundly frustrate us in time, space, and matter, we just have to remember, it may not seem good in our entire journey of life, but as soon as we cross dimensions, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. It's all going to work out for good. It's going to be good. It's going to be okay. We don't ever want to wake up any day in our human experience thinking that God is not good. And unfortunately, a lot of people in the world think that. They think, well, because the devil takes that which is good and make it look bad. He takes that which is bad and makes it look good because he's the father of lies. But we who know Christ know that God is good and we need to show the world under whatever circumstances we have, however scarred and marred that world is as we come in contact with the world, we need to bring to that world the testimony, the example, the attitude, the disposition, and the faith that we believe God is good. And we trust him, and you can trust him too. God is good.
And he's a blessing God. Which brings us to a fourth point tonight, which is fairly unusual for me, but I do have a fourth point, is where at the end of all this, David says, for you, O Lord God, have spoken it, and with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. Now, so before David moves on from this prayer, <laughs> it's like, again, we talked about Jacob a couple weeks ago, where Jacob, when he wrestled with the Lord all night, and he's like, the Lord's like, I got to go now. He's like, I'm not letting go until you bless me. Like, I'm not letting go until you bless me. And in this prayer, David's like, you got like, your blessing, with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. Isn't that a wonderful thought for you in your house, where you live, the people you love? Because Joshua would say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? The famous passage from Joshua. And if we can say like Joshua, woman or man, young or old, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're, we might as well just say, let the blessings of the Lord be upon this house. Let his provision, his protection, his power, his calling be upon us. In fact, earlier on, when God spoke about David, earlier in the chapter, when he said to Nathan, you told David, I took you from the sheepfold, from fallen to sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel, and I've been with you wherever you went and gone. I've cut down all your enemies. And I've made you a great name. That's like, this could have been a whole other Bible study, but it's like, I called you, I put you over my people, I protected you, I've been with you every gone, my presence, I've cut off your enemies, I've been your power, I've had your back, and I've made you a great name. I've made you famous in all the earth. Our God's a blessing God. And we want to have all those blessings, and all the blessings are in Jesus Christ. They're in the cross. They're in the empty tomb. They're in the sanctified life. They're in the power of the Holy Spirit upon our life. All of the blessings we're going to have, and I really went to this on detail on Tuesday night, all the blessings of God that he has for our life are first and foremost in our person and in our inner woman, in our inner man, to make us more like Jesus. The greatest blessing you and I can have is to wake up more like Jesus tomorrow than we were today. Because that woman, that man, they have more peace. They have more faith. They have more joy. Because Jesus said, I spoke these things that your joy would be full. My peace I give you now is world gives. That person is so heavenly minded. As, as you become more like Jesus, and there's more of the Holy Spirit working in our life, we, we are going to take on the person of Jesus. It's the best version of you. It's the upgrade for 2022. And that is the greatest blessing. When you can look in the mirror and not be, be hindered by guilt and failure of the past, and frustration of the present, and fear of the future. Like, he keeps him in perfect peace, her in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed upon thee because they trust in thee. Faith and fear, you're going to have faith. Despair or hope, you're going to have hope. Humility or pride, you're going to have humility. Joy or anger, you're going to have joy as a disposition. Yeah, there's things that will frustrate you, things that, you know, that can push our buttons, but the overall disposition of who we are is we're going to have faith because of the promises of God and we're more like Jesus. And that's, that's how we want to step into eternity, young or old. Think how many people step into eternity, won't even mention non-believers. Let's talk about people who confess Christ, who never really grow, who never really are fruitful, who never really have faith, but they live in fear who never really see the best in the opportunity, but see only what can go wrong. Someone who's not even a believer posted the other day, I saw this, they, they quote, it's this quote, what if I fail? And then the other the response was, but what if you succeed? 
And it was kind of like, if, what if I attempt to fly and I fall? Yeah, but what if you do fly? You see the difference between faith and fear? I just don't have time for it. And I don't think you do either. We only have so many days. Danny was praying about the sands of the, the earth. His thoughts were more than the sands of the sea. And we're also told in Psalm 139 that days are fashioned for us before we lived them. So our days like an hourglass. Here's my hourglass, 61 years in the bottom. The top, I don't know. It's like this. You can't see it. Ooh, Joey's hourglass. You see the bottom, 61 years, your hourglass. You can't see the top. Now, the, the younger people are like, what's an hourglass? Okay, so growing up in the 60s, your mom probably had an hourglass. We had a three-minute hourglass for soft-boiled eggs. So when the eggs started to boil, mom went, that's three minutes. And then the eggs came out. So I have a very powerful visual growing up in the 60s with my mom's hourglass, a three-minute hourglass. When I was being disciplined to sit for 15 minutes, five times. <laughs> yeah, just like, just, ah, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, I was that kid in kindergarten. You're just glad you didn't have me. Um, and the nuns were spared, as my mom said. But the hourglass is flipped, and like right now, you can see the bottom, but we can't see the top. Just honestly, in the 61st year of my life, I can just say, I do not have time to overthink things, double clutch things and live in fear, anxiety, and stress over things I have no control over. I don't feel like I've arrived at anything. I just know that I'm, like, I'm going towards something. So we really want to go our way tonight realizing that, that God's plans, you know, he's promised things, and the blessings are there, and we need to receive the blessings in Christ, his person, that work of the Spirit. We need to believe the blessings. We need to live the blessings. And as we do, the inner woman that we are, the inner man that we are, we're going to have peace. We have more peace. We have more joy. We're definitely going to have more love. And, and we just know that we're going to be able to d- d- discern right and wrong. And we're going to want justice for good things. I want justice for good things for all the injustices on our planet. I do. I want, I want justice for good things. But there's a danger to think that somehow it's all on me. It's like building the temple again. It's not all on me. What's on me is to be transformed from glory to glory as in a mirror. And the sphere of influence God gives me, that's on me. To love my wife, to direct my children to things of the Lord, my grandchildren, that, that's on me. And I can pray for all these other things, having done all, pray, obey the scriptures and praying for those over us in authority and these sorts of things, and then it's on them. I'm more concerned at 61 what's on me and just being faithful and being fruitful and passing it on to this congregation and the next generation. And those of you that have adult children and grandchildren, you all know what I know. You look at the grandchildren, you think, I've got maybe 15 to 20 years to really pour into them and give them a great legacy. And I want to make sure, when I'm in eternity, I do not want Clementine, Wilkie, and Remy, and Zippy, and Belzee, and and Bon Bon, and any other kids coming, because there's more coming. I don't want them to think, like, you know, Papa Joe is, he's kind of grumpy. He's the grumpy grandpa. I do not want to be the grumpy grandpa. Like, I'm reverse engineering 80, and I figured 80 will be when Clementine's wedding. So I'm going to be the 80 or that dances at the wedding. Like, what? You know? Uh, but someone recently said to Jennifer, like, oh, you know, Joey just seems like he's not angry. Or these things used to make him so upset. She's like, isn't it great they don't? 
I don't want to be the angry grandpa, and nor do you. I want to be the grandpa that inspires, inspires faith and love, empathy, compassion, based upon truth and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I'm going to tell my grandkids about Jesus, but more importantly, I'm going to show them Jesus. I'm going to show them Jesus like in The Chosen, if you know the TV show. I'm going to show them Jesus who loves everybody and by the grace of God is able to forgive everybody. That's what I, that's how I'm going to win my grandparents, my grandchildren. I'm going to win my grandchildren to walk with the Lord in the year 2041, 2051, 2061 of the Lord's church. I'm going to win them, not by raging against things I have no control over or always being angry or preoccupied. I'm going to win them by valuing my time with them, the call of God on their life, and showing them Jesus the one we see in the Gospels. And then I'm going to step into eternity and tell them, here's the baton. Go get it. Everything you got. And I'll see you in glory. That's how I see it going. Amen?